finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we read things and talk about it, and sometimes we have to talk about those things twice because we had catastrophic technical problems. Uh, This is one of those times. And so, while it is the first time to you, dear listeners, it is the second time that we have talked about uh, Ragnarok by A.S. Byatt. So, this book, which is called Ragnarok, The End of Gods, was published in 2011, mm-hmm. and it's part of the Canongate Myth series, which is a um, project that a Scottish publisher, Canongate, is doing where they're... Um, I guess, getting modern writers to reinterpret or reimagine um, a different, lots of different cultural and world myths. And this one is A.S. Byatt. Um, there's a lot of really popular versions of these from the series. Um, Phil Pullman did one about the story of Jesus, which kind of was a little bit controversial because... Well, the book was called Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ. And Pullman imagined that Jesus was two brothers. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so it was funny because it was controversial in two directions, right? Because people, Christians were mad about it because, you know, it's a radical reinterpretation of the myth of Jesus. Well, even calling it the myth is, is controversial to them. It's a radical reinterpretation of the story of Jesus. Um, and then also atheists were mad at him because they thought he was being too nice to, to Jesus and Christian ideology. Um, which is a thing that I've experienced because at least once a person in a, uh, that I was arguing with in a poetry class called me a crypto papist. Oh, but they was also insulted a lot of historians and theologians because they said, that Pullman didn't really understand the theology of Christianity. So, I mean, he doesn't really care because, I mean, in the long run, he's banking all he can from his dark material, so I don't think he cares about that. Yeah, no, he made everybody mad with that one. Also, can I just say, and this is a hot take, I might cut it out because I don't want to get, you know, excommunicated from a church that I don't actually belong to, but... (laughs) He didn't really need to come up with that wild premise because it already existed. And what he's thinking of is the historical Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Yeah, I haven't read it, so I don't really comment. <laughs> I get kind of like... Like, instantly... that's it right there. Yeah. So, no. I, I mean, I don't know if it's worth that. But I mean, I think he was like an equal opportunity offender in that. I mean, he managed to hit all the high points of writing a book about Jesus. Yeah, I once had a stress dream where I wrote a book about Jesus and someone assassinated me with an exploding pie. Oh. So, there's that. I'd like to see that in one of your stories. The exploding pie? The thing of that is it definitely entered my subconscious because of Spongebob. So, there's that. <laughs> but yeah, we're gonna actually going to read another one of these from this Canongate series uh, later. Right, that's right. We've got one book in between, but then we're going to read uh, Margaret Atwood's entry, which is her reinterpretation of the story of the Odyssey from the perspective of Penelope. That's an interesting book. I think you'll enjoy that. And we haven't done any Margaret Atwood yeah, at all. Yeah, it wasn't, so. we weren't really planning on doing two from this series, but we wanted, these were both writers we wanted to cover, and it just so happened they both had works of appropriate length for the podcast that were in this series. 
so let's get talking about A.S. Byatt. So um, she is a British writer born in the 1960s, and she's a Booker Prize winner. She was born in the 1960s. It said born 1964. Okay, so that totally changes my interpretation of this book because I thought it was autobiographical to a no, certain no, no, extent. No. She could not have been born in 1964 because she was evacuated during World she was War II. Born in 1936. 1936. Okay, which uh, means that then that this book probably is to some extent autobiographical. Oh, it definitely is. I think in my notes. I think I might have meant that her first book was published in 1964. Uh, maybe I don't actually know. Let me. See if I can also check that because I'm already looking. Yes, okay. it is. That's is the Shadow of the Sun, which was published in 1964. So that makes way more sense. Okay, so A.S. Byatt was born in 1936. Yes, and her first book was published in 1964, and she's very well known well, that's in England. Comforting because she's, yes. she would, if you're feeling like maybe you're too old and you haven't gotten anything published yet. What were you going to say? But I think what she's... I mean, she's still active and she's still writing because this book, published in 2011, is her most recent non-fiction... Uh, fictional work. And she does a lot of um, literary commentary, essays, things like that. So she's a very... She's still an active writer. But her... Like, the height of her popularity was in the 80s and the 90s. Um, that makes sense. Uh... Yeah, she's like, isn't she nobility? Like, she's, she's like a dame, or well, I guess that would you don't have to be nobility to become a dame. You just get like knighted or whatever. Yes, yes, I think it's so because I think she's won at, at this point like two Booker prizes, which I guess is the highest literary honor you can get in England. I've never, I never read anything before we read this. I never read anything by her, um, but I was aware. That she's apparently in a decades-long feud with her sister, who is also a writer? Yes, her sister is Margaret um, Drabble, yeah. which I guess is her maiden name. By it is her married name. And they have been feuding, I guess because they both use biographical details in their novels and stories. Mm -hmm. And I guess by it, is no, she, she makes no effort to hide the fact that she felt like she had a bad childhood. And I think her sister, some of the issues that she brings up about how she was raised and what happened to her in her childhood, her sister sort of takes personally. I was surprised. Look, we start. I started reading this, and it's just so we'll, we'll talk about this more when we get into actually talking about the book. But the structure is that it's sort of these retellings of Norse myths with this framing device that I assume is mostly autobiographical of a child who is in the countryside in England during World War II, reading the stories in a book. And so, like, I, that's, it starts with that. I believe the very first chapter is The Thin Child in Wartime, and it introduces our unnamed protagonist, who is definitely just by it herself. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is autobiographical. And then I was, like, waiting for her sister to show up. Wow. And there's literally no mention of the sister at all in uh, this well, she says that she doesn't talk to her sister. She doesn't read her sister's works. <laughs> and that in her mind, it is just a case of sibling rivalry. But her sister, Margaret, who also claims not to read her other sister's work, says that they have some kind of problem that they won't work out. That stems, I guess, exactly from her childhood. 
So Byatt said that she had an unhappy childhood, that she had a domineering mother, she had terrible experiences in boarding school, feeling alienated, and her, her, I guess what happened to them in the war was that her mother, just like in the book, they were they left London and she went to work in the countryside as a teacher in a boys' school, mm-hmm. and I guess that's reflected in this. Yeah, because the kind of arc of the mother character in this is that she gets this level of independence while the father is away at war and they're in the countryside, and then that's sort of like taken back, and she it kind of like causes her to retreat into herself. And I think, I mean, if you know, like, I've read quite a few of her books, but I think what she's most known for is, well, Still Life, Possession, and then Angels and Insects, which is two novellas put together. And they're the ones that she's won awards for. And Possession and Angels and Insects were both made into movies. Yeah, I I think I've seen Possession. Yeah, and I guess what she's known for is she kind of, she melds, like, Victorian and romantic literature mm-hmm. with, like, modern fiction. So sort of, like, almost like a metafiction because a lot of her books deal with either books or writers or poets. Possession is about poetry. And then I think she kind of, like, takes this sort of postmodernist kind of style of writing and sort of integrates it with the... With romantic poetry, like I said, and the Victorian aesthetic, you know. Yeah, I would definitely describe this, Ragnarok, at least, as as being metafiction. It's very clear, like I said already, like, the book is about someone reading a book. Um, But also, it's very clear pretty much immediately when you start reading the myth sections that these are not supposed to be direct translations of the myths or direct transcriptions of what's supposed to be in the book, but rather our view into the thin child's interpretation of the myth. There's lots of stuff that's added that's not traditionally in the stories. Uh, details are tweaked. And like then there's straight up parts where they comment, where, they, where the narrator talks about the thin child's like reaction to the work. And like there's one part in particular where they talk about that's that's about the um, cyclical nature of Ragnarok, and the narrator's like, oh, talks about the thin child reading in the book that that sort of coda at the end where things come back after Ragnarok was probably added by a later Christian writer who was compiling the poem, and talks about directly about the thin child rejecting that interpretation and then we get to see her version of Ragnarok so like I I don't think it's quite it's it's definitely metafiction but I don't think it's like as aggressively metafictional as like something by David Foster Wallace or, or like like you know you can go listen to our metafiction episode it's not it's not quite like Lost in the Funhouse or something like that where it's like really aggressively about the nature of fiction but this is definitely like a, a book that is to a certain extent about the idea of authorship. 
Well, I think what, one of the things that I found out, I learned something new, and I'm all, always everyone can learn more about metafiction. Mm-hmm. That's my public service announcement. <laughs> but I did learn a new term called histiographic metafiction. Okay, tell which me. is used to describe her work, and I guess it's basically the concept where you take historical fiction or elements of historical fiction, and you use them in a metafiction story. Okay. And I guess that's the way that they describe by its work. And that makes sense because she talks, I mean, she talks about her experiences, but this story is also kind of historical because it's about the events of World War II. Okay. Yeah. I had never heard that term before. But I think like she, some of her themes, I guess, kind of like her interest in Victorian and romantic fiction kind of fits that historical fiction. So, like, is Slaughterhouse-Five historiographical metafiction? Like, where, what's the... I'm trying to parse out exactly what well, is and isn't I think historical this. fiction is fiction that is not written to be set in contemporary time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's, it's, even though you could have an old book, mm-hmm. that's not historical fiction. Okay. It's just old. But it, because it's written in contemporary times about a period that happened before. It's an interesting idea. I, I mean, I should probably read more of her stuff because I, because it is literally like it is essentially a postmodern convention metafiction, right? Yes. Like almost every example I can think of of metafiction is set in a contemporary period. Well, I think that's why they specifically came up with the term historiographic because to be metafiction, you have to be a postmodernist. For sure, yeah, yeah, by its very nature. That's what I'm saying. It's like it's interesting to think about like a piece of metafiction that doesn't have like a guy working in an office. (laughs) 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 I think too. This is. I mean, I guess you could say like Infinite Jest is about children, but I kind of see them more as like young adults. But I think this is the first work. Well, John Barth. I guess I I roll that whole thing back. I was going to say I don't think I've read any. Well, that time... Uh, metafiction about children. But well, I guess that's not... Yeah, true. Lost in the Funhouse is about a child. Well, it's about a pubescent child. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's because usually the metafic- that metafiction stuff, and, and honestly, probably postmodern literature in general, is usually preoccupied with, you know, the the modern male. Like, I, that's a, and that's a probably a problem. That's a problem. Um, yeah. So it's always cool to see someone who is writing metafiction who's not a cis white dude. And it's especially cool to see someone writing metafiction that's, like I said, not about a guy who works in an office or about a guy who's afraid that he's going to have to work in an office or some shit like that. But, I mean, let's not, I mean, she still is a white. Yeah, I mean, I literally said she's a dame. (laughs) Like, like, no, no, she's not like counterculture or whatever. But like, yeah, no, it's still cool. Yeah, no. But I mean, I think that it's still a kind of. I guess Dictionary of the Khazars would be would then be historic. No, but then but that's like a weird fictional history. It's oh, metafiction. Oh, I think I broke Nate's brain. Metafiction's <laughs> confusing, everybody. So spoiler alert for for metafiction of postmodernism. It's confusing. I think that's what we state in the beginning of our metafiction episode. Yeah, just go. Li- I just go listen to that one. <laughs> um, but let's talk about Ragnarok. Like you said, it's a mashup of a story. Uh, about a child war evacuee who is has no name, but the name that she uses is the Thin Child. Yeah. And then 
interspersed within the story, the thin child is at the same time reading the, I guess she's reading, let me check my notes. Dun, dun, dun. She's reading Asgard and the Gods, Asgard and the Gods by William Bogner, um, which is published in the 1880s. And I guess the story is she has this old copy and she's reading it. But as the thin child is reading this book, by it herself is reimagining and retelling some of the myths from the North mythology. Mm-hmm. Wilhelm Wagner. Wilhelm Wagner. I think I don't have I don't have a copy of this book, but I'm pretty sure I did get it from the library at some point when I was a kid because it sound it sounded familiar to me. I wonder if it's like in Project Gutenberg or it probably is. Uh, but yeah, like I immediately uh, like I'm say I'm not a war evacuee um and i had like a pretty okay childhood thanks just so if you're not familiar with the podcast andrea is my mom um but i immediately like related deeply to the thin child as a um weird anxious kid who carried around giant books of mythology uh and obsessed over them as a kid i did my thing wasn't like i i'm pretty sure i did read at least some of this because I did get very into Norse mythology at one point. But my big thing that I had was a copy of Bullfinch's mythology that you gave me. I think every child goes through... Because, I mean, she also talks about being obsessed with the Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. And then, I guess, at the same time in England, it was very common to have these books of fairy tales and books about fairies. Yeah, there's like the Andrew Lang fairy books that come in the different colors. Um and just all sorts of collections of fairy tales and, you know, nursery rhymes and shit. But I think what this is supposed to sort of, the story is supposed to be that as a child and you're left to your own devices, because I guess it's the same thing. She's the, the parents are sort of, the father is away at the war and the mother is working, so she's kind of got absentee parents. Mm-hmm. And she's in this sort of country house and she comes across these books. And these are kind of like books... That you might find, like, in any house. You know, everybody has a copy of some type of mythology book. Everybody has a copy of some type of fairy tale book. And that's how she occupies her time. Yeah, I imagine for quite a while with, you know, in like a heavily Christian country, there probably were, everybody also did have a copy of Pilgrim's Progress. I think that's the only weird misstep in this. I mean, I understand later on there comes a part where she compares religion and mythology but I really don't think that she even needed to bring up the Pilgrim's Progress. And I don't think it's something that a lot of people, unless they're from a Christian background, even would relate to. I mean, I've, I've read it. And I think the I think the purpose of using it here is because... Well, first off, have you, have you ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Yes. Okay. So you it's like super allegorical. I mean, I don't even know if that's the right word. It's just like... It's symbological. Like, every character is a stand-in for an idea and a concept. And I think it's useful there as a way to get, to give us some insight into how she interprets these myths. Uh, if she's using that as a framework where it's like, a, she understands from reading that book as a kid that a character doesn't need to be a person. Like, you know, Loki or whoever, any of the figures in the, the Norse mythology... They don't need to just just be people because just in the same way that the characters in Pilgrim's Progress are stand-ins for like 
lust and temptation and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, I guess it's probably not the most universal reference. I mean, the thing is, if it doesn't work because it was like being written at the same time or whatever, but like, I I I think it like you could have slotted in like Little Eye and the Witch in the Wardrobe there. It just I think it's just there because it's like an something allegorical that it it makes sense that a kid would have read. Well, I think you're right because at the end of this volume, there's a short essay that By writes called Thoughts on Myths. And she specifically says that there's a difference between fairy tales and myths. Mm -hmm. And then she goes on to say that one of the things with myths is they're not characters and they're without psychology. Yeah, okay. So I think that really, yeah, that really, that sort of puts the parts together. But you wouldn't know that if you didn't read the essay. Yeah, but I mean, it's a short enough book that like I... I don't blame her for expecting people to read the essay. But yeah, I I understand that. Uh, what was I going to say? But yeah, so we're given this introduction where she's reading this book. And then it slides into these retellings of the myths. But the the other thing is like, I, I don't know if it's established this early on or not. But you mentioned like, oh, her father is at war. But specifically, the way the father is talked about is that he is like doomed. He's fighting in Africa, I think, specifically. And she talks about, like, everyone... The way everyone talks about him leads her to come to this conclusion that he's not coming back. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of, like... It's a little bit heavy-handed, but the concept of Ragnarok is similar to how she feels about her father. And what she believes is inevitable is that he's not going to return from the war. Well, yeah, and a major... Um, I mean, she talks about it directly in the book, but, like, a major, uh, theme in Carlson North mythology is the inevitability of fate. Ragnarok's the big one, because that's the apocalypse hanging over everything. But if you read Norse myths and poems, a recurring thing is that, like, you can't escape your fate. If something is prophesized, it happens. And, like, every Norse hero, and because of Ragnarok, every Norse god, except for a few, are by their very nature, doomed. Like, every story of Thor has his inevitable death at the fangs of the world serpent hanging over his head. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about this, and we'll talk more when we get into the actual myths that she's talking about, I think it's really interesting the way that she depicts Loki and his children and the way that she depicts Thor. Yeah. Because I think it really sets sort of a different tone than the way most people think about these characters. I guess due to, like, pop culture and... Well, the the, the Marvel stuff is huge and has kind of, um, you know, really colored everyone's interpretation of those characters. But yeah, if the closest thing the myth section has to, like, a protagonist or, like, a main character is Loki. Because there's lots and lots of... Like, a, more... Time is spent on Loki and his children than I think any other particular figure in the myths. So let's get into it, like because the book opens with this the Norse creation myth. Yeah, and which is wild. I've just recently read like two different versions of it in addition to this because I, I I mentioned um, I mentioned that we this is the second crack we've taken at recording this episode. And in between then, I've read all of the Poetic Edda and, well, reread. I read it before when I was younger. And I've read a good chunk of the Prose Edda. 
Uh, so I've read this creation myth like a couple times, and I really like her version of it. I think what this there's lots there's a couple points where this book really showcases by its like technical skill as a writer, and I think the creation myth does where she talks about Yadrasil. There's Yggdrasil? Yggdrasil. Or Yggdrasil. And then she goes on to create her own version of the world tree that's for the oceans and the aquatic environment, which she calls Randrasil. And I think this is where she talks a lot, I mean, she talks a lot, maybe too much, about fish. But (laughs) I feel like her sort of, her prose where she talks about the natural world and when she's describing the tree and describing this aquatic world, I think sort of sets the tone. Like there's a strong environmental message throughout this book, even from, even to the point where when they get to Ragnarok and she talks about how the earth is dying leading up to the time of the battle. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to say this. It's a, the, it's a very, um, physical, visceral sort of, uh, portrayal of these myths lots of detail on like the physical on like bodies especially in the creation myth when they start to talk about Ymir and like making the world out of him but also just like of the environment like if you like l- people listing stuff <laughs> yes. you're gonna like this she does a lot of lists okay so maybe she should work for BuzzFeed <laughs> yeah but like yeah, she she spends a lot of time on the like the physical details, the physical space, the like things in the environment, and which manifests a lot as listing, which I also think is an intentional stylistic connection to these myths. Because reading like the prose edda, like the characters will just like be telling the story of creation and then stop and do like a three page list of dwarf names. Well, I think, and she's kind of like doing that, but the detail that she's interested in is not the lineage of the dwarves, but instead like. The physical space and the kinds of birds that are in the that nest in the world tree. But I think you see that a lot in Norse mythology because they, the culture was very focused on the natural world, mm-hmm. and you see that like in a lot of description. You get an awful lot of description about like Odin's horse and what the you know the crops and growing stuff so that they can make beer and I think that kind of stuff is in there because they're relying on the natural world more and I think she's focused on that but I think British writers love to list things yes they do I mean it's not like Tolkien level but but I think that's the thing it's like coming from the same place like they're both influenced by this and it's like that listing is like almost a way I, I used to think it was annoying or when I was like a kid and I maybe still do a little bit to a certain extent. But I feel like that that method, like, that listing off of stuff is, like, a way to, like, underline, like, immerse yourself in these details. These details are important. The fact that I'm telling you all the names of the dwarves means the dwarves are important. The fact that I'm telling you the, all the different kinds of flowers that are growing in this field means the flowers are important and you should be immersed in those details. And there's a lot of that in this book. And I just think in, in general, the, her writing style here is really beautiful. Like, the description... There's two parts in particular that are, like, long descriptions of the ocean. And there's the, the ranger soul part, and there's a part later with Jormungandr where she... One of the chapters is basically devoted to the story of Jormungandr growing to the point where it can encir- she can encircle the world. Which is a cool 
thing that I've never seen, like, really touched on in a way that was more than, like, two sentences. And both of those have these really lush, alive, chaotic descriptions of the ocean that are really nice. And then also, like, retrospectively, because of the kind of world we live in where, you know, just today... I read a news story about, like, scientists being concerned that the Gulf Stream is slowing down. They become kind of tragic and, and melancholy just through our relation to our current state. Well, I think, I mean, everyone agrees that the Ragnarok story is a cycle. It's a circle. Yeah. And I guess a lot of mythology is like that. And I think she does the same thing. When she begins to tell the creation myth and she's talking about the, the world tree and Randersil... She's talking about how beautiful and pristine and fruitful the ocean and the world is. And then as she goes through the stories and you start to sort of learn more about Loki and his children and then leading up to Ragnarok, the way that she describes the earth and or Asgard in the beginning at the start of the cycle that starts Ragnarok, you can see she starts to use a different kind of negative description of how the earth is and she talks about the cold and the crops failing and the ice and then the desperation of the people mm-hmm. who were living on in the on the planet that time and it's kind of like the bookend of like the pristine beginning of the world and the tragic end of the world which was partly brought on by the gods, but and partly brought on by the greediness of the humans that are living on the planet. Yeah, but it also just seems like it's just maybe just a cycle that it just happens. You know, the Fimble winter comes and it's like the world just ends. Everything just dies eventually. That's also that section is... So the Fimble winter, people don't know, that's like the... The, uh, the Fimble winter is the like impossibly cold and deadly winter that like precedes Ragnarok that sort of sweeps across the world. And that again is like, like with the um, Jormungandr chapter that I was talking about, like this is is another one of the more like sort of in depth uh, descriptions of that that I've ever seen. That focuses on the way that this endless winter just kind of like causes human society to crumble away in the face of this like impossible disaster. Whereas like normally you really only get like a couple sentences that are just like, and then a great winter came, and, and then it's more concerned with like telling you you know, which gods get killed by which, you know, monsters and giants and whatever. Uh, but where she, this, even though this book is very short, she really digs into the those details uh, in those parts. And I think it helps add a really, like, affecting texture to the story. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's interesting, too, that she is conscious and aware and decides to put in the fact that humans are now living alongside the gods at this point. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you though, like, what do you the the rain getting back to Rain's result? That's the that stuck out to me like uh, weirdly prominently in the book because it is like the biggest in like invention she comes up with, and I wanted to know what you make of it. I think I think two things. I think first she was trying to make a way that she could put in her sort of thoughts about the environment. Mm-hmm. But then I also think that she, as an experiment, because I I imagine that she's the kind of writer that gives herself experiments or projects. And I think she was kind of thinking about, like, how can I create my own myth? Mm -hmm. And I think that's what this is. 
And then also maybe she just really likes fish and she wanted to like, she was like, today I want to write about fish and she just did it. Yeah. Because no one's going to tell A.S. Byatt that she can't put in a chapter where she lists a lot of fish. Yeah. The thing I was thinking was like, one, it's like a logical sort of extension of the idea of the world tree because it's like the world tree is supposed to go through and over everything, but it's like... Ash trees don't grow in the ocean. So it's like, what's in the ocean instead of the world tree? Like, it makes sense that that's something you might think about. And then, yeah, I think, like, it feeding into the ecological theme makes sense. It, like, helps paint a sort of more full portrait of, like, the ecology of this world. One of the things that I think is interesting about North mythology, it's not like Greek mythology where there's a god for every thing. But yeah. there's lots of gods, but they're not specific. Like Thor's the god of thunder, and he like is the one that clearly has the, the you know the most thought out job. Mm-hmm. But like Baldur's, he's not a god of anything. Yeah, it's less. There are some, like some people have jobs. Like, yes, like Loki's children, and some people, some gods don't have any jobs or. Yeah, there's like, and even then, it's like I think the th- problem. Part of the problem is the word God, which I don't think is, like, fully accurate to describe the ace here. Because they're more, like, they're, they're, they're like, them and the giants are more alike than the terms God and giant would make you think. It makes them seem t- more separate than they actually are. Yeah, and they're not really, like, the, like you said, like the Greek gods where it's, like, they have dominion over something. It's more like when they're the God of something, it's either that they're just associated with that or I guess in some cases they do like Thor has control over storms but a lot of times it is like people call Baldur like a god of light but it's really just that he is associated with the concept of light because he's like shiny uh and then there are the ones that have the jobs but a lot of times I think also those are supposed to be like giants and other figures that are just like ah my job is I control the sun um because I mean like the impression that you get is that Odin is the father, and then he has all of these children with other goddesses, and they have varying levels of power, but they don't really do anything other than like stand around and posture the whole time. And then I guess Loki comes in, and I like the way she depicts Loki because he's not like a trickster or like a jerk or like a jokester mm-hmm. he's like an a really smart person god whatever yeah. he is and he kind of gets fed up with these with baldor and thor and odin and he react he makes this very complicated sort of plan to give them the comeuppance that they deserve but in the way of doing this he accidentally or purposefully i don't know at this point Sets off the end of the world. Yeah, she has... Loki is, like, a character that is very ambiguous. Because we we get so much of... Like I said, like, Loki is almost the main character of the myth part. We get so much of, like, the story of how he begets his children. We have that whole chapter with Jormungandr where, like, Loki kind of pushes her along and, like, plays with her and guides her to getting bigger and bigger. And it's really ambiguous as to whether or not... Loki is just doing these things to cause chaos or if he's working towards the goal of like 
setting the board for Ragnarok. Well, I think it's also interesting that all of Loki's children are depicted as like sentient beings. Yes. Like when they talk, when you t- they do the story about Jormungandr's um, sort of awareness and growth. Mm-hmm. Like, that's kind of, it's not just like, oh, she's a sea serpent that, you know, her t- she bites her tail when she gets to the end of the world. And then it's not like F- Fenrir. Fenrir. Fenrir is like this wild, gnashing beast. Like, he he's like, sort of tricked and he's mm-hmm. kind of misabused by the other gods. And then Heel is kind of like the same thing, where she's put in a position where she's forced to do something which is to go down to the underworld because just being Loki's daughter. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's like, it's unclear, like, did Loki have these kids on purpose because he knew that they were going to be important for Ragnarok? Like, does Fenrir exist because Fenrir will eat Odin? Or does Fenrir eat Odin because Fenrir exists? And that's like this, like, question that's at the core of all of the Loki stuff in this that I find really intriguing. So... Did Loki plan the longest game in, like, immortality to just kind of, like, own Odin because he's such a shit? Like, Odin in this depiction, I mean, he's not even, like, he's depicted as sort of, like, neglectful and he doesn't pay attention. He's kind of, like, lethargic. He doesn't really do anything. And then once he gets the world's knowledge, he kind of, like, hangs around all the time. Yeah. Like coming up with weird things like a bracelet that makes two bracelets of itself every eight days or just <laughs> Yeah. Well getting that getting into like the creation myth thing, she talks directly about like because like, the North creation myth is that like there's this river with like a poison yeast and the first giant emir grows out of it and then like uh a cow licks some ice and it turns into a guy and his he has maybe has three sons and they kill Ymir and make the world out of his body and she does a lot of stuff with like describing like the physicality of like you know and they take the brains and they make the clouds and all of this like stuff about like the physical body of Ymir becoming the earth but she talks directly about like some versions of the myth Loki is one of those three brothers. Odin is always there. Odin's always one of the three that kills Ymir and helps make the world. But sometimes Loki is with him and sometimes he isn't. And there's this, like, ambiguity to Odin's relationship with Loki. Well, what's what's Loki's thing? Like, a lot... Sometimes he's depicted as being, like... It's very unclear. He's... You know, there's the whole story where he was... He's actually a frost giant and he was taken in and raised by... Odin, sometimes he's Thor's brother. That's more of a modern thing from the comics. I think think the thing is, like, whatever Loki is, he's not quite an Aesir, and he's not quite a giant. He's possibly the son of giants. But then again, like I said, the actual boundary between the gods and the giants is much thinner than the terms would have you believe. Uh, He has some kind of connection with Odin. Odin has some kind of oath... Where he won't drink unless Loki is also allowed to drink. Which comes up in the myths. And, like, Loki's a shapeshifter. We get, like, there's... In this, there's a description of this whole thing where Loki tries... We we get the the death of Baldur, and then after that, Loki tries to hide as a salmon. 
and gets caught in that hole. Like, there's really, like, the two things that Thor does in this are fish. Yes. He catches Loki as a fish, and he, he has, like, a minor scuffle with the Midgard serpent um, before their final confrontation. Yeah, because I Ragnarok. think, like, it's also interesting he, that, like, well, I don't know if it's because of pop culture, but Thor has this, like, sort of presence where he is so dominant and he is so powerful. But in her version, he's kind of like a mild-mannered, like, son who just does what his father tells him to do. Yeah, well, so, like, and I understand, so, Marvel Thor, the main, like, cultural interpretation of Thor that exists now, he's kind of like Superman meets Jesus meets Hercules. Um, And I think the reason that they get to that conclusion is because if you read back in the myths, Thor's main deal is that, like, he's the one god that kind of isn't a scumbag. (laughs) Like, who who is kind of just, like, a a good and noble dude who doesn't fuck around and doesn't like trickery. And so Thor's role a lot of the times is just to show up and beat up the trickster figure. And like sometimes that not we don't beat up Odin, but sometimes he he is he puts Odin in his place. And sometimes it's Loki and sometimes it's just like some giant and he's just supposed to be like very stolid and straightforward. But it's like at the point where and I found this to be very fascinating, the chapter that she does about Loki's house. Yeah. And she talks about how he has this thirst for knowledge and he wants to know how things work. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason why he keeps doing all these terrible things because he and he wants to deconstruct stuff so that he can see it. So he creates this elaborate house that allows him to learn a lot about the natural world, but then also keep him alert to when... He knows that Odin is going to come for him. Mm-hmm. And this is why he comes up with this house where he can see all these different things. And then when he, he creates this... I'm surprised you didn't mention this because it's fascinating. He creates this net. Yeah. As a way... He creates a net that can trap any creature as a way to figure out how he can escape from any net that he is in. And then he gets caught in a net and then he gets out and he burns the net so that no one knows what he's doing. And then this is how he ends up becoming a fish because when he knows that Thor is coming for him, he goes to hide as a fish. Yeah, but they also like read the plans of the net in the smoke or the ash or whatever that's left behind. And it's this thing where it's like, again, it goes back into this like self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, you made, you, you, to be so sure you couldn't be caught, you made the thing that could catch you and in the act of making it ensured that it would come to be. Well, I think that's like... also part of Loki's problem is because he might be too smart and he gets like hoisted in his own petard all the time. But I like how like Thor is kind of like, he just reaches into the stream and he's like, gotcha. Well, yeah, there's kind of like a, uh, yes, there's kind of like a trinity, right? Like with between uh, Odin, Oki, and Thor, right? Where it's like Odin is tortured by the possession of knowledge. Like Odin knows that Ragnarok is going to happen and he's going to get eaten by his drinking buddy's wolf son. And that, you know, all of his kingdom will be destroyed. And like Thor is at peace in his, not even ignorance, he's just like, he's... Not concerned with that. And then Loki is tortured by not knowing. Well, I think that, yeah, that's perfect because 
Odin never really does anything to stop Ragnarok. The only thing he does is he's... Or literally everything he does is an attempt to stop Ragnarok. There's it, it could go either way. But, I mean, he, like, he creates this sort of bond for the wolf to kind of subdue him. Mm-hmm. And he... I don't know what he does to the earth, the serpent. He just casts her out into the ocean. Right. And then they're, they're just expecting... I think the expectation is that it will die, and then it doesn't. And, like... What Bayad adds is this thing is that Loki helps her grow into this thing. Right. But I think if he was trying to stop Ragnarok by doing these things, he inadvertently pushed Ragnarok along because those events wouldn't happen if he didn't do what he did. Yeah. If he didn't buy... What's the It's like the Fenrir. If he didn't bind Fenrir to the point that he got incredibly insane from being... um, Tied up. Tied up. Also eats Tyr's hand. Yeah, he wouldn't have reacted when he was, like, he goes on, like, a rampage yeah. because he's, like, gone mad with this sort of punishment. And it's the same thing with the serpent. Yeah. Like, the years of isolation and the sort of self-awareness that she creates from being isolated for so long allows her to become large enough to become the world serpent. And that also pushes Ragnarok further. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Like, he knows that Loki is doing these things. And I think even at some point, like, they have this sort of Viking game. I don't even know what it is. They have this sort of event that leads to Baldur's death. Oh, it's, I mean, it's just that Baldur is invincible now, so it's fun to throw shit at him. Yeah, and but it's it, like, he, yeah, that's the thing. Like, you, we, I just read all of these stories, and it's like, Odin knows that he's, that's gonna happen. Like, it's like this, he's a very mysterious figure, because it's like, you don't. It's never clear if he doesn't do things because he just knows that he can't prevent them, or he's causing these things to happen by trying to stop them, or if it's somewhere in the middle. And then there's this mystery of like, what's his connection to Loki? Why does he have this oath with Loki? Um, why doesn't he try to kill Loki or something if he knows that Loki's going to spawn all these monsters? And then there's also in the de- in the myth of the death of Baldur. Uh, one of my favorite things that she does bring up in this story is like he whispers in every version of the myth as far as I can tell Odin whispers something in Baldur's ear as he's being sent off on the funeral ship and it is no one knows what it is it's always it's presented explicitly as a mystery that is never solved I don't think there's any version of the myth where he doesn't do that and there's no version where we find out what he said but I think like I mean, she goes into a lot of detail about Baldur's death. And I think it's a really interesting story because it's the same thing. Odin knows yeah. what's going to well, happen. And his mother, Frigg, 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 yeah, Frigg or Frigga. She knows and she goes to this enormous amount of effort to kind of protect him, like sort of like yeah. the ultimate helicopter mom. And she then, gets every, for people who don't know, she gets everything in across all the realms, all up and down the world tree, to swear that that will never harm Baldur, but she overlooks mistletoe. Right, and then even when she's aware of it, she's kind of like, or I think it's Odin, Some one of the gods says, oh, well, there's no, you know, this is like sort of a parasite, it's not going to, how could it possibly kill someone? Yeah. It just sort of hangs on a tree. And then Loki, in the skies of an old woman, 
uses Baldur's brother to be like his cat's paw. His blind he, brother. His blind brother. This is this is terrible for this poor guy. He's, he suffers so horribly and he, he's not like, he's like barely a character in any of the myths. So he creates this spear. He extends the mistletoe and he, and he grows it to become the spear and he convinces the brother to throw the spear at Baldur. Yeah, because everybody's doing it because it's like, oh, nothing can hurt Baldur. So there's just like winging hammers and like I, I'm imagining like cast iron pans and anvils at him and, and they're the, all just bouncing off of him. That giant cauldron that specifically they had to steal from the giant so they could yeah. make beer in it. I love that story. <laughs> That's a great story. Um, but yeah, so he throws the spear and it kills Baldur. But so Baldur's death, the myth of, of the death of Baldur is essentially Ragnarok in miniature, right? I think so. Because it's like there's all this foreknowledge action to prevent it causes it but it's like it may it probably would have it also it's ambiguous as to whether or not it would have happened anyway if they hadn't done anything it also brings up this idea where it's like she does everything she can and she overlooks the mistletoe and then it's like maybe maybe that's the explanation for why things play out with odin that it's just no matter what something is going to happen that he can't see that will cause the thing to happen anyway there's also that it's not brought up with the story but it's something interesting that i was thinking about now where it's like what if the reason mistletoe exists? What if the mistletoe didn't exist until she was finished asking everything? Like, what if she had asked the mistletoe and there just would have something else would have come into existence that she had ignored anyway? Because there has to be something beyond her sight that will kill Balder. I think so because I think it's inevitable that Loki orchestrates the death of Balder. Yeah, because if he doesn't orchestrate the death then there's no sort of repercussions. And what's Balder? There's there's three brothers. There's Balder. I forget the names that she uses specifically. There's Balder, Hod, and Hermod, I think, are their three brothers. Because there's the Hod, I think, is the blind one that kills Balder. And then he runs away into the wilderness. And Odin sires a new son on a giant named V. Valley, whose entire purpose is to kill that guy, which she doesn't really touch on that very much, but I've always been intrigued by that element of the myth. And then Hermod, who's the messenger, is sent into the underworld to ask Hel if Baldur can come back to life. And then they have to ask everything on the earth to mourn for Baldur. But I think it's Herm- Hermod himself who finds in a cave this being called Throck that might be they think it's Loki. They think it's Loki. He thought it initially that it was a giantess. It could also just be the concept of darkness. Or what I my interpretation is that it's all three of those things and the distinction between them is irrelevant. Uh, and that refuses to mourn for Baldur because Baldur is this representation of the light. Why would the darkness mourn for the light? I think it also, that's one of my favorite parts where she says, uh, tell Heal that she can have what's hers. Yeah. But then he goes down to the underworld and he sees him and he says, you know, I don't, it's all right. It's not that bad. I don't mind staying here. And then well, he goes back to Bracelet. I think he explicitly doesn't say anything to him. It's a ring. And he takes it out of his mouth and drops it on the floor in front of him. <laughs> and it's like a total shitty move. And it's just like, can you imagine being that guy and like, mama's precious baby boy has to be allowed to come back to life. So you have to go to, into hell to find him. And then he fucking does that. Like, what a, what a jerk. Uh, but yeah, but they decide that Throck must be Loki, and like maybe she is, maybe she isn't, maybe it doesn't matter, and that's why they go hunting for him when he's a salmon, 
which leads to his imprisonment, which is then he is freed at the dawn of Ragnarok to sword fight with Heimdall to the death. I think also, I mean, this is there's lots of sort of imagery of these sort of giant boats and things like that. When they're talking about, I think this is one of the telling kind of, like, in the first version of this recording, you had referred to Thor as, like, a large adult son. He is. He's Odin's large adult son. And I think it's really clear in the scene where they make this giant ship for the funeral of Baldur. Mm. And they fill it with so much that no one can push it. And they can't launch a ship, so they have to get a special giantess who's extremely strong Mm -hmm. and then thor gets very mad for some (laughs) irrational reason and he (laughs) hates the giantess and he wants to fight her yeah but doesn't he throw (laughs) somebody into the boat because he's so angry (laughs) yeah and he kind of acts like a stupid like lughead. yeah but the weird thing is she she doesn't engage with what seems to me like the clearest interpretation which is like he's thor like the, the big hero god and like he can't do he, it. He can't do it, and also, like, Baldur's dead, and he couldn't do anything about it. Like, every other story, something bad happens, and Thor can just run off and go beat up a giant and get revenge for the thing, or whatever. And, like, this is, like, one of the instances where he's completely powerless. So, that sets off the trigger to the start of Ragnarok, because Thor captures Loki, and just like a lot of the sort of, even in the pop culture, you see this. We talked about this directly when we did the Kindly Ones, or maybe even before that. It might have been in Season of Mist uh, for Sandman. Like, there's a very vivid depiction of the imprisonment of Loki in Sandman. I think that is in Season of Mist. Isn't that like a brutal torture? He gets sort of like... Yeah, he gets bound... his. Some of his children are killed and their guts are used to bind him in a cave where a serpent is dripping poison into his eyes for all eternity. And his wife, who he is a huge dick to, he really does not give a shit about this lady. He's just running around getting pregnant with horse children. For <laughs> but she um, the ultimate ca- bad boy. catches the poison in a bowl, but every so often the bowl gets filled up and she has to pour it out. And then the poison pours back in. And a lot of depictions of it, I think she, Baya talks about this too. There's this idea that it's like, that makes it worse. That she gives him this brief respite makes it worse than if the poison had just been pouring into his eyes at all times. But then also, his screams agitate Fenrir. Yeah. Who kind of whips him into a frenzy. And that's when he sort of... Now, he breaks out, or... There's a... Ragnarok starts... I don't remember what... If it's Jormungandr or something causes earthquakes that free him. Right. But yeah, Bayat portrays Ragnarok as... And I think this does get back to the ecological thing. As this, like, inevitable end result of, like, this escalating domino effect that moves through the world. Um, so yeah, like, which is, again, like, a portrayal of, like, it's it, it's becomes, like, you know, it's, like, ecological collapse. So once he's free, mm-hmm. that's when it starts, I guess, like you said, the Fimble winter. Yeah. Which she kind of depicts almost as like the dying of the earth and then this sort of return to like savagery by the people who live there because they have no more crops and they can't grow anything and then they're forced to turn on each other because it's like this endless 
desolate winter that's slowly like killing every living thing on the planet and it's kind of it's it's the reverse of how beautiful and sort of joyful she describes the creation myth this is sort of it's opposite I mean it's kind of really graphic and it's sad and you know that there's darker things happening she depicts the people in their house the farmers and you know that something nasty is happening in there because they don't have any more food and so yeah i mean of... i think she lit uh, she they like at one point she she doesn't dwell on it but like they do resort to cannibalism yeah and it's kind of like there's no sort of in between where she talks about the environment it's the creation myth and then it's the winter so there's no sort of arc where it's saying like they're they know that you know there's climate change or whatever there's no really indication of that it's just that you know here's the beautiful creation and here's the terrible apocalyptic end we almost get a little bit though because in the chapter with jormungandr um growing that's where we start to see like because we get the creation myth and we get like oh the gods make the humans out of trees and stuff it's all traditional north mythology stuff but you know written in a very appealing poetic way but in the Jormungandr part is where we get to see that civilization is building up because there's lots of stuff, not lots of stuff, but there's stuff in that chapter about Jormungandr fucking with fishermen and attacking boats and seeing them building, like, cities and stuff. So we get, like, a, a little bit of, like, here's the in-between of, like, humanity populating the earth. And then we jump to the ending with the Fimble Winter. Yeah, and then I think, like, it's sort of a very traditional depiction of what happens in Ragnarok. Yeah, but it, it is, like, this, like, breaking down of things, like... She, everything you know she talks directly about rejecting this sort of more hopeful possibly later invention where it's like balder comes back and they these like new generation of of gods like repopulate the world with surviving humans whereas her vision of ragnarok is everything breaks back down into the black water of gnunga gap the void and the, it, the, like, heat death happens and the universe becomes silent and empty. And it's like, there's, you can read a cycle into that if you want to. Like, it's like, okay, maybe, why wouldn't what happened before happen again? But as far as she's concerned, like, she talks directly about, like, this is, she likes that it's the ending. That it's just over and done. Yeah, and I think with, with the concurrent story of the Thin Child, the creation story also starts with the arrival of the Thin Child into the countryside. Yeah, And then the story goes on where she's depicting the gods, where she's talking about the experience of being an isolated child and reading these myths. And then Ragnarok corresponds with the end of the war where her father, who turned out not to die in the war, returns home and the family is reunited and, and they go back to their family home in the city. Yeah, and it's like, it's, we see a little bit of like, I don't know, like the cruelty of non-endings, where it's like, the, her time on the countryside ends, and they go back, and her mom is miserable because she's lost her independence, and she becomes this distant figure, and she can't, also, their, their dad is like a you know British, you know, stiff upper lip guy, and he's traumatized by the war, and like, he's also not great, and it's like... Uh, there's can... almost like a cruelty to life just continuing like it's like oh we have to keep going and things are not great so you could see why she would like the like finality of that ending yeah and I think there's a point like it's it's kind of there's a part where the father chops down the tree that's in their backyard yeah and it's kind of like 
her father obviously is, I guess, his return is just as traumatic as Ragnarok. I don't know. Yeah, well, he shots on the tree. There's the world tree. We get a description of the like a, a very sad description of the world tree and of Ranger Cell like dying and becoming unrooted in the course of Ragnarok. One of the things I was talking about in her depiction of Ragnarok that was interest was interesting to me was there's always this detail where it's like Thor was gonna is gonna fight the world serpent and defeat her and then he will walk nine steps and die and almost every time that's portrayed as being this like heroic defiant like thing where like he still walks away when he when he dies and she portrays it as being like foolish and like sad like it's like he doesn't walk away because like he's gonna get the last laugh and you know he doesn't the you know fucking the undertaker walks to the back without having to get on the stretcher she portrays it as like he doesn't know that he's gonna die well, I kind of think that you can tell by the way she depicts Thor in general is that she doesn't think he's as cool as like no, she Marvel thinks, does. So. Yeah, she thinks he's a dummy, uh, which is fine. <laughs> he is, um, but I, I was just like interesting because I had never really seen an interpretation of that detail that went that way. What's your favorite myth? Like Norse myth? Yeah. Hmm. I mean, I I, I really like the death of Balder. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I think one of the most fun ones, I just read this story last, like, last night, and so it's fresh in my mind, but it's referenced in this, is when, uh, I believe, I forget where exactly she brings it up, but there's the, the Thor's meeting with Utgarta Loki, who's maybe, he's a different character than Loki, but I definitely feel like there's room to interpret them as maybe kind of being the same guy, but he's like the super powerful giant that's, has a lot of magic, and the thing that's usually referenced is like, Thor, like, hides in his glove, and that's portrayed as, like, there, there's a, a story where Loki shows up at, like, as uh, in Asgard and, like, makes fun of everyone, and one of the ways he roasts Thor is by calling him a wimp for hiding in a glove, <laughs> but it's, like, this story where he meets that he goes to meet with this giant to do something, I guess just fight him or whatever, because he's Thor, and he's impossibly large, and on the way to him, he meets up with this other giant who's also impossibly large and he's like let's travel together and thor gets scared of this guy because he's so big and powerful and he tries like three times to kill him by hitting him with the hammer and every time the guy's like oh was that like a leaf that fell on me that's weird (laughs) and then he gets to Ungarta loki's castle and he's like well i only acknowledge you and your friends if you could beat like my people in some challenges and so i think he's got loki and like two other guys with him and he loki is like i'm gonna have an eating contest and so they bring out uh a bunch of food and he challenges this guy to an eating contest and he loses really bad and then one of the other ones is gonna have like a race and he loses the race really bad and then thor i guys like a drinking contest where he's supposed He's like, here's this drinking horn. Everybody here usually drinks it in one draught, but it's pretty cool if you could do it in two, though. And no one's ever had to do it in more than three. And it's so, like, every time Thor drinks it, he can't believe that there's that much left and he can't finish it. And then he's like, okay, give me one last test. And he's like, all right, what about a wrestling match? And he brings out an old lady and she kicks Thor's ass. (laughs) And then Thor's, like, dejected and just decides he's going to leave the next day. And then this guy confesses that what was actually going on here was he was the giant in disguise. 
And whenever Thor wasn't looking, he was moving the mountains around to make himself look bigger. Moving the trees or the mountains around to make himself look bigger. And he was also moving stuff in the way of his head, like mountains and boulders and whatnot, so that the hammer never actually hit him. And when Loki was having the the eating contest, he was actually having it against the idea of fire. <laughs> and that's why he was eating faster than him. And when the other guy was racing, he was racing the concept of... He was racing thought. Like, the thoughts in Utgarta Loki's head. And when Thor was having the drinking contest, every time he tipped the drinking horn up, he put the other end in the ocean. So he was trying to drink the entire ocean. And when he was wrestling the old lady, he was actually wrestling the concept of old age. And it's, like, this very, like, uplifting idea where it's, like, the fact that the they... It's, like, yes, it's you didn't win any of those challenges, but the fact that you did any made any progress against them is commendable like it's the idea like when you're battling thought your own thoughts when you're up against like the concept of age and and the world the fact that you don't give up immediately is even if it feels like a defeat is actually a victory and he's like it seemed like you were a loser oh but like if you the fact that you did as well as you did makes me unspeakably scared of you and if you ever show up again i'm gonna do the same thing and he, like, gets so scared of Thor, he moves his castle away <laughs> physically while Thor isn't looking. Also, though, the one of the challenges he gives him is to lift up his cat. <laughs> and his cat is really big, and Thor can't lift it. And he was like, when you got one leg of that cat up, it that cat is so heavy that we were terrified. <laughs> I told you that everyone lifts the cat up, but, like, when you did it even a little bit, I was like, that ch- chonker is so chunky. <laughs> That I'm I'm terrified that he could even lift it at all. And that's one of my favorites. I like that one a lot. That's like obliquely referenced in this, but I like that story. That's good. I don't really have a favorite, but one of the things I think about a lot, because it comes up a lot, is that weird boat that they make. That's was made, made out of fingernails? Yes! That's, that's in the Neil Gaiman version of North mythology. And I think that's kind of like a weird detail, and I don't know why... People focus on it. It's so bizarre. Yeah, but I mean, there's like a lot of that stuff. Is like there's a lot of like earthy physical. The world is made out of a giant's corpse. Like <laughs> it's very strange. So overall, what did you think of the book? Oh, I liked it a lot. I, I thought it was really cool, uh, and I really liked like her writing style. And you know, it's always interesting to see other people's interpretations of like these old ass stories. What did you think of it? I liked it. I I had read her other books, so I was prepared for her sort of purple prose that she has. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it was interesting that she melded, like, mythology with her own personal narrative. Oh, yeah. There was something about that that I wanted to talk about, a detail that I dug, um, is that she talks about this... You know, it gets back in this a little bit of the metafictional thing of, like, being about authorship and literature... She talks about, like, her inability as a child to reconcile the fact that this book was, that she loved so much, was written by a German with the way, the, like, the Germans as presented to her in the context of the war as these, like, boogeymen that are going to kill her father and want to kill her and they have to retreat into the countryside to get away from them. But then also they, like, write this book that she likes and it's like, uh... You know, I don't know. It's like it's like I understand that as like a that makes sense as a thing that a kid would think about, and I like that that detail in there. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting. I also, I like the depiction of Loki. Like I said earlier, mm-hmm. they don't pick him as like a buffoon or a trickster or this sort of... Or the devil. Yeah, and I like that because, I mean, it kind of shows you that, you know, he's smart and he plans and he kind of like, all these things are like he accidentally gets caught and, you know, I, I don't... I don't really think that that's a great depiction of him, and I understand why. I mean, that's almost how the it. story goes. Yeah, so I like that. I like sort of. I mean, I I don't know. I just I thought it was one of the sort of better, more interesting modern takes on Norse mythology. I mean, it's not extensive. It's a very short book, and she doesn't go into. It's more like it's almost like the Neil Gaiman Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. Where it's a selected retelling of the myths that are most relevant to her. And I think that kind of makes it more personal. Which I think is interesting because it's like you said, it's not like Bullfinches. Where it's just like a list of the myths and you know what they mean. They're, they're embellished. And I like how she took the time to create her own creation myth that sort of is included. And it's sort of parallel to what happens in the stories. Mm-hmm. So, do you have any recommendations for books about Norse mythology? You seem to read a lot about it. I do well that um, the the translation of the poetic edit that I just read it was really good. Uh, it was by Jackson Crawford. I think it's just called Poetic Edda. Um, he, internet people, those who are extremely online, might know him as the guy who did those rewritings of Star Wars in the style of a Norse of an Icelandic saga. In, so I would I would recommend checking that out. That that Neil Gaiman Norse mythology book is is pretty good too. Like I, I would also recommend that. Uh, also, if you get the audiobook, Neil himself will read it to you, which yeah. is always comforting because he has a really great voice when he does his own audiobook. Yeah. Another fun detail though about that um, poetic edit translation is there's a there's a poem called like the Havamel or something like that. I'm not exactly. Sure. That's like a it's sort of in two halves but the first half is like a collection of wisdom from odin and at the very end of that translation he has a rewrite of it called the cowboy havamel or it's got like a western style like it's like an old cowboy giving you the, the, this wisdom and that's fun so like that's an extra little thing in there the only thing i wanted to bring up was i guess i don't know if you're aware of this but dark horse is doing an 18 part adaptation of neil gaiman's i was aware of that i haven't read any of it i know that that exists though it looks really cool well i think you should look at it because mike magnolia is uh doing the mirror mirrors head and odin's eye which he's doing the illustrations for. uh those make that makes sense that he would do this yeah there's there's one thing that so, Mignola likes to draw uh well there's lots of things he likes to draw but one of the things he definitely likes to draw is a severed head yes so the compilation graphic novel is coming out this month, March 2021. I'll check it out. So. Yeah, I was seeing like it getting, when it was coming out, like I would see it in the solicitation and stuff, and it always looked cool, but I haven't, I hadn't checked they it out They have yet. a lot of high-profile comic book artists working on it, so it should be really good. Yeah. So. There's also, this is not like a, a faithful adaptation of Doors by any means, but there's a... Uh, you know, Walt Simonson, he's one of the biggest, like, uh, Thor writer and artist for Marvel. He has, like, a huge Thor run that has, like, a depiction of Ragnarok happening in it. 
uh, which and Thor's fight with the World Serpent that's entirely in like one page spread, so it's just like like real you know fucking jaw smashing action comics thing. But he did a comic I think for IDW that was just called Ragnarok that was like a totally different take on Norse mythology than he had done before that has like a zombie Thor in it. I don't know if we'll ever cover for the podcast, but that book's really cool and I'd recommend people check that out if you're looking for more comic stuff. And then, of course, there's our favorite Douglas Adams, his Long Dark. Oh, the Long Dark Tea Time of the Soul. Yes, yeah, that yeah. has to deal with Thor and, mm-hmm. and detectives. So that's a good meld, I think. Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, do we have anything else to say about this one? I don't think so. I think the only thing I would say is that if A.S. Byatt tried to pitch this as a standalone, she might not have been able to get it published. Yeah, I feel like this would be hard for this to exist outside of the series it's published in, which is good, because that's a good... I think that's how these sorts of things should work. Uh, if you were going to recommend somebody check out one of her works besides this, what would you recommend? I think Possession is my favorite of her books. Mm-hmm. And I think Angels and Insects, which I said is two novellas put together, they focus really heavily on naturalist and the victorian period and i think that's an interesting combination so i read that when i worked at a natural history museum library so it really felt relevant at the time okay yeah i didn't mean to interrupt you that's it (laughs) all right uh then i guess we're good so the next thing we're gonna do is uh another one that we have to record again because of technical difficulties uh but we're gonna cover my favorite thing is Monsters by Emil Ferris, which is, you know, it's going to be our comic. It's a cool and kind of intense at parts coming of age story slash mystery set in Chicago in the 60s. It has a lot to do with the Universal Monsters, which is fun. I have to say I was not angry that I had to read it again. It's very good. Again, like, if you want to, I would highly recommend reading that before our next episode, but... Uh, you can also just listen to our episode when it comes out. But yeah, so uh, check that out and uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone. Bye.